The Blaze Radio Network. On demand. 40 Acres and a Fool with Cam Edwards. You know, farmers start to offer things that they haven't necessarily had to offer in the past, uh, including, uh, you know, benefits, uh, the uh, the ability to actually use some of the land uh, to grow your own crop. You, you know, you would call that sharecropping at, at some point, but uh, it's a far different type of sharecropping than uh, what it would have been in the 1930s. 40 Acres and a Fool on demand. Download episodes at theblaze.com slash radio. SoundCloud, iTunes, and Google Play Music. Breaching the fault lines of today. Welcome to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser talking to you from CPAC this week in National Harbor, Maryland. Glad to be back with you with Reform This on the Blaze Radio Network week to week. If you've listened before, I hope you find that voice of reason, a voice that brings you the facts, brings you rational approaches, brings you a strategy, not just arguing about what we call the threat, but what do we do about it? And I think that's what we do here week to week as uh, we join each other in a conversation about how to solve the problem without, without alienating those who are most useful, most essential, our greatest assets in winning this war, which are Muslim reformers, Muslims who are patriotic Americans that believe in this country and believe in the ideology of freedom. I'm reminded this week of these core values as I came again this year to CPAC, a place where conservatives come together to strategize, to do real grassroots work, to listen to candidates, to listen to our leaders, our executive branch, cabinet secretaries, uh, the president, the vice president, to uh, talk about approaches on policy, be it uh, what the threats are, what we do with them. And I was honored to participate this week in a, in a panel on the main stage with Ambassador John Bolton, with uh, Ariel Davidson from Hoover, with moderator Raheem Kassam from Breitbart. And we talked about what is the biggest threat to the United States? Is it Russia? Is it China? Is it rogue states? Or none of the above? And what I want to do with you today in this first uh, few segments is walk through with you, and I think it's a good sort of 101 of what you and I have been talking about for many, many weeks. You can see the video online. I think it was short. Uh, the panel went very quick. But it uh, really covered a lot of ground as far as walking us through the threats, and I want to give you a little taste of what I talked about. First of all, I think it's important that we realize that strategy is about trust. It's about realizing what is number one in American interests, and how do we advance that abroad. And I said, you know, for too long we've been playing defense. You've heard that before. It's time to play offense. We talked about Russian bots. We talk about all the manipulation of our elections. We talk about the Islamist infiltration through immigration, through insurgencies, through ideology, propaganda, be it in mosques, be it through Al Jazeera, etc. Those are all their offensive techniques. What are we doing for offense? Ladies and gentlemen, we do not have an offense. We don't have an offense. We're playing whack-a-mole. The Pentagon's doing whack-a-mole from Iraq to to Hezbollah and Lebanon, to Syria, to Afghanistan. The State Department's doing whack-a-mole from protecting our embassies to trying to figure out where the next threat is. 
ICE is playing whack-a-mole as we protect our borders and let thousands in that are not yet really vetted for ideology while the Supreme Court uses Muslim identity politics to prohibit the president from protecting our country against certain threats. All in the name of political correctness, in the name of what they believe to be the constitutional protections of people who aren't even here yet. We're not talking about citizens' rights. We're talking about rights that are being afforded to people who want to come here. Sort of odd. Now, listen, I'm I'm the son of immigrants. I believe in the American narrative. But if we dilute that, if we allow it to become hijacked by folks who really don't only reject the American experiment, but really want to come here to destroy it, to bring forth theocracy, Islamic theocracy, in complete contradistinction to what our founding fathers believed in, that's not only suicide, that is, ends up being anti-Islam, anti-Muslim, because the theocrats believe they are God. They believe they determine what is and what is not Islam and what is and what is not Muslim. So, how do you put all this together? When we talk about threats, sadly, we end up talking, oh, let's talk Egypt, what's going on with their Muslim Brotherhood defeat, with el-Sisi, and then we go to Iran, what's going on with the beginnings, the rumblings of the revolution there, what's going on in Saudi Arabia, why were half of the royal family put in the Ritz-Carlton, and then we talk about Afghanistan, why can't the Taliban go away? And each of these ends up dizzying every one of you. You get dizzy. You say, what, I can't become an expert in every one of these countries. Let's just stay out of there. It's a mess. And America then goes from trying to destroy the threat of Al-Qaeda after 9-11 and those who harbored them from Afghanistan to Iraq to then ultimately saying, you know what? Enough is enough. We are becoming isolationists. We don't want to be involved. Because we don't get it. We don't understand the threat. The threat is not each of these states. The underbelly, the soup that all of these countries are brewing in is a pre-modern theocratic interpretation of Islam that believes that the identity of every individual is tied to, not to individualism and God, but to Islam, to the Sharia state, Sharia supremacism. Their jihad can not only be militant, but it can be civilizational, it can be cultural, it can be written, it can be many forms of the spread, the forcible spread of their ideas. And until you realize that that's the underbelly in every country. So it's all a pretty simple formula. Islam, being 1,438 years old, has still not gone through a reformation has still not gone through a separation of the realm of the world, of this earth, from the realm of God and heaven, so that every individual can make up their mind on what is and what is not their faith, that the law is no longer an embodiment of God's law, but rather simply man's law that we agree will make us more peaceful and will make us run by a country of reason based on the rule of law. And the Islamists, I think as I've said before, The greatest examples are not the militants, but the more dangerous ones are the non-militant, like, oh, the so-called moderate at Brookings, Shadi Hamid, 
who constantly talks about Islamic exceptionalism. In fact, that's the name of his book. And he has this utopian, falsified, this utopian, falsified uh, understanding of what is and what is not Islam that he believes somehow may mimic in some ways be different from America. But in effect, it is a whitewash. It is a deception. It is a taqiyyah in that he understands, as do most Islamists in the West, that they're lying, they're deceiving us, that they will ultimately, when they're a majority, as we see inside the mosques where they control the boards, others, they will put into place medieval Sharia interpretations that can never be modernized because it's all about black and white interpretations of the Quran with no room for metaphorical interpretations. So what should be our strategy? How do we move forward? When we come back, I want to talk to you, lay out for you what I laid out here at CPAC. The Conservative Political Action Conference, an annual conference that brings together conservative luminaries. Obviously, there's uh, criticisms out there, and I can tell you serving on their board, it's an honor to sit among many of the conservative leaders in America. And, you know, obviously there's so many issues beyond what you and I talk about here. I'm pretty focused on theological reform issues regarding counterterrorism, counter-Islamism, and foreign policy, domestic policy. But, obviously, I'm an activist. I get involved in things that I may not bring to you week to week, but as part of the conservative movement, it has informed, it has driven a lot of the work that I do. And they've been very receptive. I believe this message would would resonate just as much with the left, with conventions that include uh, many known luminaries of uh, liberal ideology in America. But unfortunately, they only want to hear the Muslim identity politic who are the Islamists who scream Islamophobia at every hiccup and unfortunately have only brought us more bigotry, have only brought us more low expectations from society and have not pushed us past denial. So when we come back, I want to talk to you about the strategies that I laid out at CPAC this week. This is Zudi Jasser on Reform This on the Blaze Radio Network. Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser. Breaching the fault lines of today. The Blaze Radio Network. The progressive movement is full of lies. Why do Americans keep falling for the deception? In his new book, Liars, Glenn Beck reveals the simple answer, fear. At our most basic level, we're all afraid of something. And progressives exploit this by offering us solutions to our fears. Solutions based on lies and an unrelenting hunger for power and control. Understanding the roots of these lies is key to helping us stop the disease of progressivism. Liars by Glenn Beck. On sale now at glennbeck.com slash liars. You're listening to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser, the Blaze Radio Network. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. Welcome back to Reform This on the Blaze Radio Network. We're at CPAC this week, and uh, we're talking about the greatest threats to the United States. And if you didn't catch my panel, I'm trying to give you a little bit of taste of what we talked about. And maybe even expand on some of the things that I didn't have time to say because of uh, the short time we had and the number of uh, great thinkers we had on the panel. But um, 
So, I left off last segment saying we need a strategy. I think that strategy ultimately will be formed, should be formed by a commission. Not simply parts and pieces from every arm of government and the executive branch and the judicial branch and legislative branch, but a whole-of-government approach guided by a commission that can independently begin to put together the pieces of what that strategy should be. We wasted eight years, if not even more, including the Bush administration, more than eight years of the Obama administration, wasting time arguing about what we call it. And the diagnosis is obvious. It's political Islam. It's Islamism. It's the radical and non-radical movement of theocratic Islam that is collectivist, that is anti-freedom, anti-liberty, and an anathema to American freedom, an anathema to Americanism, incompatible with our constitutional republic, and especially with our constitution. So the commission would begin to lay this out, and we begin to have a whole-of-government approach. So what would the country's strategy begin to look like? Well, first, I think you should brush up on some of the Cold War history of how America approached. No, not the McCarthy hearings and and blacklists, etc. No, I'm talking about how America approached a strategic gathering of thinkers in beginning to put together papers and other luminaries who are well-known historians. And and I don't want to bore you with the history, but there's well-known papers out there that formed the beginning of the seeds of thought of of beginning to bring together the thinkers about what was the common thread of Cold War ideology we were fighting. And it wasn't just the Soviets, it was Soviet war theory, it was communism. And we realized that communism was the engine, the oxygen of the threat of the Soviets. And that was incompatible with Americanism. Until we understood that, one of the reasons we had major spies and others is we didn't really have a consensus on what we were looking at regarding the threat. Fast forward to the 21st century, the threat is Islamism. The whole-of-government approach would include a State Department, for example, that begins to engage and we begin to take sides and talk about the fact that we will no longer not only just hold Iran accountable, but we will no longer ignore the fact that we share values with the people on the street, the women on the streets, waving the flags of freedom, demanding that the government pay attention to what's inside their head and not force them to wear something around their head and control their bodily autonomy. That's the size we should be on. Strategic thinking that would emanate from a whole-of-government approach would begin to start to say, you know what, we want to work with Muslims who believe in equal rights between women and men and women. That's the side we want to take. We want to work with Muslims that don't believe in a male-dominated court system that says women have half the vote, a third of the rights, a quarter of the inheritance, whatever it might be that's the Sharia interpretation of the day, that we demand that we only work with Muslims that clearly have shown a track record in movements that are for equality of men and women. And that we measure the metal of the ones we work with, not just because they let women drive, but 
that they actually begin to get them to equality now. Not in 30 years, at 2030. Whatever other years they're pushing it off to in Saudi Arabia or else. No, now they begin to respect the equality and talk about it. But these folks talk about what they're going to do. They don't even lay out exactly. We don't even know. They say this modernization, that modernization is going to happen in 2030. But they never talk about the equality of men and women. Would there be a revolution if they did? Who knows? But we need to take sides. The choices are not binary. The choices are not binary. I laid that out to the audience at CPAC today. Too long. We've said we've always thought that we had a choice between A or B. Assad or ISIS. The Saudi royal autocrats or the Wahhabis. Those ended up being the same. The Khomeinists or the Shah. So we need to support the folks on the streets trying to be free. Nobody thought there'd be another revolution after the 2009 failure in Iran. And now in the past six to eight weeks, there's been another one. There have actually been banks closing because the people realize that if they make runs of the bank, it can start to affect the economy. We've seen communications that are bypassing the firewalls of the government. We've seen women's marches. We've seen demonstrations in cities known to be strongholds of the theocrats in Qom, for example. So if you want a strategic approach to the nuclear program that would weaken Iran, there is nothing more strategic than a revolution against the theocrats. That has the longest security, the longest, the longest mechanism of safety that could ever happen than one that looks to continue to contain this hell of a disastrous nuclear agreement that Obama agreed to in which we handed billions that was then used to spread and sow terror around the planet and it all continued all in the name of a nuclear deal we have to realize that this global jihad is not only the source from the Khomeinists in Iran but it is an ideology that whatever permutation of Islam you look at has within it a propensity right now in which the majority, if not almost every leader of mosques affiliated with Islamic governments are Islamist theocrats. And we need to confront them. Why else is it that we see the ISIS radicalized youth are from Bangladesh, they're from Uzbekistan, Pakistan, Afghanistan, Iran, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, Tunisia, No Muslim country seems to be immune to the radicalization. So this is the underbelly that I talked about at CPAC, that we need to shift from CVE, countering violent extremism, to CVI, countering violent Islamism. We had a little debate about whether the Brotherhood should be designated a terror organization. I've talked to you about that before. I believe the Egyptian Brotherhood is should be designated, it's the mothership. But I believe that if they've not voiced violence, that they fall into the realm of groups that are fascist, that are are anathemas to our ideology. In fact, they may be seditious. I believe they are. Islamism is a separatist movement. But we don't jail 
and call terror organizations all separatist movements. We marginalize them. We make them culturally, ideologically radioactive, but we don't punish them because of speech, unless they're calling for imminent acts of violence. That's the Brandenbury versus Ohio decision. That's been the, the, the clear tradition in America, and I think it works. Why is it? Why is it that the Saudi government quickly purged its family ranks of Muslim Brotherhood sympathizers? Why is it that they want to declare the Muslim Brotherhood a terror organization, as does Abu Dhabi, uh, I mean Dubai? So think about it. The corporate Islamists are threatened by the viral ones, and the only way to push away, marginalize, decrease the impact and the threat of your competing mafia of Islamists is to make them illegal and call them terrorists and put them in jail. Just because of speech, just because of ideology. Yes, it's a threat. We have to be aggressive and offensive in defeating them. But that defeat is not militarily. It is militarily if they are violent, like Hamas, Hezbollah, Al-Qaeda, ISIS, that are clearly need to be destroyed and decimated and jailed. But if it's an ideology in which the precursors are anti-Semitism, the precursors are socialistic, collectivistic, that needs to be made radioactive. It needs to be identified. And every American listening here and across the planet and across the airwaves, I hope, realizes that the global jihad is the problem. They divide the land and the planet into the land of war and the land of Islam, Darul Islam and Darul Harb. There's a lot of military operations that need to happen and will happen. That's in snuffing out radical Islamists that are militant, like ISIS. And even, I'll remind you, last June, there was Operation Inherent Resolve, in which the coalition defended partner forces from Syrian fighter jet attacks with hundreds of Russians even recently. This week we heard also claimed to be mercenaries that were somehow found there, and yet, as close to Putin was acknowledgement in some reports, it was known that there were still hundreds of Russian fighters there. So Russia is very actively involved, and there are military solutions to making sure that they fear the United States and not just remember the era of Obama in which we were no longer feared as we ran away with our tail between our legs. We need that commission. We need to fight the establishment globally of the Islamic leadership, which is all Islamists. The people are not all Islamists, but the leadership is. We need to begin a process. Even Macron, as I talked to you last week in France, has begun to talk about the need to work with reformers. Now, he missed the target on some things. Look back at my podcast last week where I talked about what some of those things he missed were and went too far on. Don't get confused between the old feuds of Sunni Shia, that somehow that's the problem. Tribalism is the problem, but the Sunni Shia divide is a sectarian schism that many faiths have, but it doesn't need to be solved. What needs to be solved is the Islamist political Islam movement from within each Sunni Shia, even Ahmadiyya and others that are still Islamist in their interpretations. We need a whole-of-government approach. We need a commission that's 
diverse, that's housed with Muslim leaders, reformers, think tank leaders, homeland security leaders, academic leaders, interfaith leaders, that begins to guide our community on what needs to be done. And eventually it can become a process by which we vet immigrants, by which we vet domestic and global threats and our policies. That's what I talked about at CPAC this week. It was great. It's always an honor to come to CPAC and see so many of our fans, see so many of the conservatives who are part of the grassroots change and policy direction. It doesn't mean if you come to CPAC, contrary to media, that you you buy into all of the ideas thrown around or all of the leaders that were here and what they say and what they do. I'm not going to get into those controversies right here. But like any meeting, it's diverse. Free speech is about diversity. Listen to them, hear them, and then argue, and then critique. It doesn't mean we accept everything they say or do. Just like our president, we might agree with a lot of his policies, his welcome changes, but we might also disagree. And that's why we need to hear them out and then have our discussion. This is Zudi Jasser on Reform This, and we'll be right back. Breaching the fault lines of today. This is Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. Welcome back to Reform This. You know, I always like to bring you some stories that you just don't hear about elsewhere. And I think, you know, after I finished this panel this week with Ambassador John Bolton, the previous uh, ambassador to the UN, I read a story by the irreplaceable, the, the brilliant Hillel Neuer, who runs UN Watch and always brings us information about the UN, which... Every day you hear something, you're like, no, it can't get worse than this. And then you realize that the UN, despite the greatest efforts of Nikki Haley, who's just been a fantastic ambassador, a wonderful representative to the UN, but you start to realize that it is the feculent byproduct of the worst of human waste for most of those that are there. And on February 22nd this week, UN Chief Antonio Guterres, for his blessings, as Hillel points out, before an acronistic UN committee charged with decolonizing the Falkland Islands and Gibraltar at the same time as the 24-nation entity elected by acclamation. Wait for it. Now, who's going to be the head of this body, the decolonization committee? You guessed it, the genocidal Syrian regime's representative, Jafari, Ambassador Jafari, is going to be the head, the rapporteur, the designated rapporteur of the Special Committee on Decolonization for the UN. This committee is a joke. It focuses on 17 nations, 17 that includes Gibraltar, the Falklands, Bermuda, French Polynesia, New Caledonia, in addition to Samoa, Anguilla, Bermuda, British Virgin Islands, Cayman Islands, French Polynesia, New Caledonia, I mentioned that one, uh, uh, Turks, St. Helena. So these are all countries that seem to be in beautiful areas 
and the committee has been criticized officially for its exorbitant and exotic corruption in its travel. The Pacific Regional Seminars that it went under are notorious for the habit of holding um, regional seminars in tropical islands, all alternately in the Caribbean and the Pacific. At the time, it was investigated. Even the UN came back and said its money was being squandered. So, listen, you know what's going on in Syria. They've been refused even from the UN committees. And they, what do they do with this designation? They use it, as Hillel points out, they use it to bolster their credibility. They said, the re-election of Dr. Al-Ja'fari, according to many analysts and observers, is yet another recognition by members of the Committee of the Syrian Important and Key Role. So Syria trumpeted its propaganda victory when it got the same appointment in 2013. So, first of all, this whole committee is a joke. Most of these countries do not want their independence. They don't consider themselves colonized, and they enjoy the benefits of being attached to certain other countries. Now, if the UN wants to investigate these territories or whatever they may be and whether they're colonized or not, that's fine. But to put the head of a genocidal regime that has killed 600,000, if not more, that has displaced 10 million of its 21 million, just speaks as a metaphor of exactly how useless they've been. They created a chemical weapons prevention group that ultimately, supposedly, Obama took credit, he says, for getting 90% of it, and yet the 10% remained. Red lines meant nothing, and they've continued to use it. Then we saw President Trump, when the first documentation was made of chemical weapons being used, he then completed an airstrike against the Syrian regime to send them a message that that will not be tolerated. Now, since then, even conservative reports have said that there have been 10, 15, 20 attacks using chlorine gas and others in Ghouta and elsewhere. We've seen this week alone massacres in Ghouta. We've seen this week alone three to 400 Russian troops, they call them mercenaries, troops that were apparently funneled through Ukraine into Syria. Syria, Russia are violating every UN resolution. They're violating every modicum of humanity. They're committing war crimes on an hourly basis with no accountability, no response, no force. The UN need only look back to what unperformed the UN Protection Forces did in Bosnia-Herzegovina, how ultimately after 200,000 were dead, they then, through the leadership of President Clinton at the time, finally did something through airstrikes and then troops on the ground under the uniform of UN Protection Forces. So it can be done when the UN puts its head to it. And as Hillel points out, Today's, or this week's UN's vote, points out only helps the Assad regime portray itself in a human rights moniker, which it does not deserve. It's an insult to Syria's victims. Morally, the UN should do the right thing, at the very least condemn the decision.
In conclusion, I'll tell you, defund the UN. Defund the UN now. It is a waste. We provide 25, if not more, percent of the funding. Why are we funding our own critique by dictatorships who, who shouldn't be critiquing anybody? Why are we funding the lifting up and legitimization of fascist genocidal regimes? Why? Why is their home here? This is not the vision of Eleanor Roosevelt. And thanks to the great work of folks like Khalil Neuer who point out to us what so many people forget on a day-to-day basis. There's a lot of work to be done. The UN is wasting the time insulting Syrian citizens, insulting Syrian victims of the war crimes of the Assad regime. When we come back, let's ask the question, does poverty connect to terrorism? Do people commit acts of terror because they're poor? That's the narrative that the left and some want to portray. I talked to the El Hurra broadcasting station about that this week, and uh, I thought I'd share with you some of my thoughts. This is Zudi Jasser on Reform This. Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. Don't miss the morning blaze with Doc. Actually, honestly, though, uh, <laughs> white people were the minorities in my high school. Really? Yeah. The so, no yeah. kidding. Did you give them a yeah. beat down? Uh, Did you mock them? I mean, you had to, you know. Yeah. You got you know, to let them know who, right, who runs good. the place. Here, try this. <laughs> try this pepper. No, it's not hot. No, it's not hot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, tequila's like beer. <laughs> the morning blaze. Weekday morning, 6 to 9 Eastern on the Blaze Radio Network. Blaze Radio Network On Demand. Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. Welcome to the last segment this week of Reform This. Always trying to bring you the discussions that you don't get anywhere else. The frank talk, the tough conversations that no one's willing to have. You know, one of the mantras that has come out of a discussion of counterterrorism and National security has been maybe it's uh, maybe it's about the vulnerability of the population. Maybe it's all because of the poverty, and if we get them jobs, they will get better. A Middle Eastern broadcasting station, El Hurra, an American-funded station that has a considerable following in Iraq and in the Middle East, called and interviewed me for a while with another professor out of Cairo about the connection of poverty to terrorism. And we had a we had an excellent conversation about the root causes. And I wanted to share some of that with you. So first of all, uh, you know, we look a lot of we look at you can look at a lot of crime data, a lot of uh, data regarding those who are estranged that uh, there may be a correlation to socioeconomic status and and um, poverty, that's sometimes a, a sense of being provided for, and others um, may prevent the slide down radicalization and prevent the need to be exploited by others. However, having said that, first of all, the most notorious 
ideologues of the radical Islamic movements are all millionaires, billionaires, well-educated. Bin Laden, Zawahri, uh, Zarqawi, all these uh, radicals that you know of are either engineers, physicians. Uh, these are well-educated folks that are not coming out of poverty. So the, the top of the food chain of the militant Islamists are educated and not poor. And not poor. The bottom of the food chain, some of the soldiers, the ones that commit the suicide, wear the suicide belts, some of them may be poor, others are not. They're true believers. They're willing to die for their cause and they dehumanize their targets. Now, are there those within that are poor? Yes, and I think the best analogy that I wanted to leave you with this week is drug use. Look at the global use of heroin, cocaine, drugs. You'll find that you've got the distributors, the multi-millionaire billionaires who are making money and cash hand over fist that now we've seen some drama shows uh, from Breaking Bad to um, Narcos and others that talk about the hundreds of millions of dollars in international money being made by you know hundreds of millions of dollars of international money that are being made by uh, uh, these uh, uh, business execs that some of which don't even use the drug they distribute some do but it doesn't affect their productivity and they go on with our DEA global interdiction agents working night and day to try to get them on crimes. So I, I, if the drug is political Islam, if the drug is Islamist theocracy, the intoxicant of dying for jihad that makes your life redeemable, that allows you to seek redemption into the identity movement of separatist Islam, then the vulnerable, the vulnerable become somewhat susceptible to that, as we see with radicalization in prisons, as we see with radicalization from those who've been shelled and pummeled by militant regimes in Syria, etc. So as with drugs on the streets, uh, the drug itself is not directly causing the problem, but it does become a mechanism to wash away the problem. So the viral grassroots spread of the drug can happen as a result of poverty, as a result of psychiatric disease, as a result of familial problems, especially family problems. And I think, similarly, the the youth that have inferiority complexes that don't really have an identity, that are estranged from their family or radicalized by their family in a belief that Islam is their only identity, and they don't really have an identity with which to identify with the population that we live in in a nationalistic way in which they would love the military, love the police, believe in the system, believe in this society that protects them equally. No, they reject it. They believe in another utopian version of an Islamic identity. And thus, poverty, a sense of hopelessness, a sense of victimization, is exactly what ends up radicalizing them. Yeah. So it can be part of it. But the victimization issue, I think, is even more important in radicalization. And that's part of the Islamism, the fact that the other, the non-Muslims, the Jews, the Christians, 
all the hate that's spewed by Islamists becomes part of the radicalization process in which part and parcel of making them radical is convincing them that the society hates them, convincing them that the other hates them, convincing them that the others are weaker, are inferior. That's where the anti-Semitism comes from. They're inferior because their morals are corrupt because they hate Muslims and thus it justifies their hate because they're hating folks who they think hate them. All propaganda, all supremacist interpretations of passages from the Quran or from the Hadith, but it's used to radicalize young Americans, young Westerners, young Muslims all over the planet. And the cycle continues. So, don't let yourself get sucked into a conversation about it just being about poverty. It's not even in the top 10 reasons of radicalization. It does make the younger users of the intoxicant of political Islam more vulnerable. It does make them more susceptible. But it is not the reason they go to the jihad to the militant, the military belief that they want to join and kill innocents and be suicidal and jihadists all over the planet. They leave their home in Georgia to go join the jihad of ISIS in Syria. They leave their home in Manchester to go join the jihad and see if they can't get there to do a jihad in London. Yes, that's ideology. That's supremacism. Sharia state identity. It's not about poverty. As always, it has been great to talk to you again this week. Look forward to catching you when I get back from CPAC next week. And I'm sure there will be a lot to talk about. Stay safe. Keep our country safe. Keep your family safe. God bless you all, and God bless the United States of America. This is Zudi Jasser signing out from CPAC in 2018. Talk to you soon. You're listening to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser. The Blaze Radio Network.